I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton here. Uh, Today I am with Gwenolo Jones, who is the former Labour MP for Carmarthen, but that was a very long time ago and he's done an awful lot since. Um, These days he acts as a political commentator and I thought it was a good idea that round about St David's Day had a chat with uh, Gwenolo about the changes that he has seen over the many years that he's been involved in politics, but also looking at the current political situation and to see uh, what he might have to say about the future of uh, Wales. So, Gwenoro, first of all, give us a bit of uh, uh, background about your roots, how you got involved in politics in the first place. Um, Partly by accident, I believe. I obviously came from a a mining village, mining family, um, a labour well, actually half liberal, half labour, because another big portion of the family were farmers. Uh, so probably that's defined my politics to this day, uh, a lib-lab type of uh, a person. My first recollection of politics was being taken by my grandfather and father when I was about 10 years of age, 12, to listen to an Irene Bevan in Carmarthen Mart, the old Carmarthen Mart that held about 4,000 people. I can remember that vividly. Um, then I started increasingly through uh, school, secondary uh, grammar school, Cardiff University, got involved with politics more because I was studying it. And then the local Labour Party came right in, were looking for someone to fill a vacancy on the Clenarthy Parish Council. So even though I was in Cardiff as a student, I was now on the Clarity Parish Council as well. And from there to being the Assistant Secretary in, in the, the Kimnaithin branch, and that led me to being on the General Management Committee of the Constituency Party in Carmarthen, where I came across then on the issues surrounding Lady Megaloy George and whether she should have stood or not, and she died when everybody knew she was going to die. Uh, it was a crazy decision. That was in 1966. That's right. Uh, when she, sh- she really should not have stood because people felt let down. And you of know? course what happened was that led to uh, one of the most famous by-elections that's that right. happened in Welsh history right. where uh, Gwynfor Evans won the seat yeah. for uh, Plaid Cymru. He was the first ever Plaid yeah. Cymru elected well, MP. There are two key events. Lady Meg had only won to be the selected candidate after the death of Rhys Hopkins Morris by one vote from a well-known Welsh politician, John Morris. John was a young barrister, I think, or lawyer, assistant secretary to the equally young Farmers Union of Wales in those days. Now, he only lost it by one vote. And, of course, if he'd been selected, the by-election would never have occurred. Would or would never have been heard of. That's Well, he would have been, but the, the by-election would not have been what it was. So that was the first one. And then, of course, and I was at this meeting when the Labour Party had to decide its candidate for the by-election. And the choice was between Gullim Priest-Davis, highly academic, North Walian, strong with the North Walian accent, I remember conversing with him, going around the mining areas. People didn't understand him, didn't understand the dialect. Because you've got to remember, uh, the media, broadcasting, television, it didn't play a big part in Welsh life back then in the mid-60s. So it was like listening to somebody from a foreign land who was going around. But the choice was between him and Denzel Davis. Who later became the MP for Llanetlin. And I was at that meeting. And Denzel was incomparably, incomparably better suited to have been the candidate. But as so often with the Labour Party, once the hierarchy had looked at someone to be the favourite son and the trade unions and the miners and the transport workers got behind it, Gwilym, who was shaking like a leaf reading his notes, I I can visualise it now, and lots of us were disappointed that Denzel didn't win, and Denzel would have beaten Gwynfor Evans, local man, local Carmarthen man, uh, young, uh, very talented. Um, I maintain to this day that one of the most talented politicians of the last half century in Wales 
has been Denzel Davis, without question. So the extraordinary thing is here that, um, uh, obviously from a nationalist perspective, uh, everything really begins in 1966 for them because it's the first time that they've got a member of parliament. But had it not been for mistakes made by the Labour Party and whom they chose at two elections, which were only, uh, what, four months between each other? That's right. Then uh, Plaid Cymru would not have got a seat in Parliament. They would not have won the by-election. No, no. What do you think would have happened? Uh, this is part of the uh, the game of, uh, you know, what might have been. But if Gwynvor Evans had not won the by-election, if there hadn't been a by-election at all, or if he yeah. had lost the it, by-election... His vote went up from about 7,000, I think, to 16,000. Yeah. Uh, between March 66 election and the July by-election. So what would have happened to Plaid? Well, the great unknown uh, factor is, would Cashley and Ron of the West have happened afterwards? Because they were later by-elections, a, year or, so uh, a year or so later, where Plaid came very close to winning these Well, uh, those seats. were very impressive... Uh, by elections, you know, when they when they were almost defeating thirty thousand Labour majorities down to fifteen hundred, two thousand, whatever it was, in many many ways, it was probably more sensational than Carmarthen. So it's not possible to say that Plaid Cymru would have stagnated, but certainly it would not have given it the impetus if the by election of sixty six had gone in a different way. And then, of course... There was always a struggle, you see. If you read well, Plain Cymru history, constant struggles in Plain Cymru uh, about the lack of progress. And before the by-election, Gwynwar was under some um, pressure as leader because things were not happening as they wanted for the previous 10 years. And I think winning the by-election saved his leadership of the party, to be quite honest. He had quite a few... Uh, opponents within the executive and the hierarchy of Plain Cymru who were disenchanted with his style of politics. Which was? How would you characterise it? Well, some called, refers to him as an old-fashioned liberal. Uh, he certainly wasn't a left-wing politician. Uh, he certainly wasn't... Uh, uh, in the mould of uh, David Ellis Thomas or Wrigley, say, and certainly not Leanne Wood and uh, Adam Price, for instance, these days, those people would be alien to Gwynro's style of politics. And it would have been very interesting if he had been younger and what, where his stance would be in these days, say, in the last 10 years. Very difficult. So he was, and he, of course, he didn't like the Labour Party. In fact, he hated the Labour Party. And to be fair, the Labour Party hated Gwynvor as well, both on the county council in Carmarthen and after he won. And um, the two parties were literally at war with each other in the seven, eight years we fought each other in Carmarthen. And of course, you had a very personal role to play in this because at the uh, follow-on election in 1970, you were the Labour candidate. That's right. And you defeated yes. Gwynvor Evans. yes. How did you manage to defeat him? Well, I'm in the middle of writing about it now, so I'm always trying to back and reflect, have I got the story right? Gwynver was not a good constituency MP, despite all the nonsense about, you see, he was called the member for Wales. People come out and wanted the member for Carmarthen, but he kept on referring, and some of his key supporters you know, called him the member for Wales. And he, to my knowledge, missed several key deputations that involved matters relating to the constituency. And he was the sitting member of parliament. And I would turn up to some of those meetings. Goodwill was nowhere to be seen. Right? And then, of course, he did two or three catastrophic things, um, which no doubt helped my situation. You know, the investiture was one. Uh, Plaid Cymru uh, was split on the investiture. Uh, that's the investiture of the Prince of Wales. That's right. Uh, which, looking back, was a political masterstroke by Wilson and George Thomas and those. Uh, it, it was after the, um, the by-elections, wasn't it? In Calfilly and Ronda. And uh, it, it worked. So Plaid Cymru were divided. Gwynevo didn't go to the investiture. 
and he made it clear that he wasn't going to go to Carnarvon. But of course, he quickly discovered within days that this was a very popular thing in Wales, when the prince then started his tour of Wales. Who was there at Carnarvon Station to welcome him off the train was Gwynfor. Now, there was a lot of uh, talk of hypocrisy about that. So there's one issue that he didn't handle too well. Then was a trip to Vietnam, of course, you know, on a peace mission. Uh, It was at the height of the Vietnam War. That's right. And quite something quite honourable in having a peace mission. But there you go again. It was presented, you see, as this member for Wales going on this grand international peace mission. But the sad story was they never got to Vietnam. They weren't allowed to go further than Cambodia. And whilst, and I think they met Prince Xianuk in Cambodia, but whilst all this was going on, there were prayer meetings and vigils being held by his people in chapels in rural Carmarthenshire, praying for his safety. But he was nowhere near Vietnam. Nowhere near the war. Nowhere near the war. So that became a bit of a, a story. He was too anti-Labour. Because remember, after 67 to 70, um, the, Welsh, the Welsh economy and the British economy was not too clever. You know, Callaghan, devaluation. He had to resign. Jenkins took over as Chancellor. Uh, I remember meetings with farmers and things like that before the election of 70 where they were up in arms about the prices they were having for milk and the prices they were getting for calves and sheep. The conditions were in his favour, right? And Labour, in 1970, lost about 70 seats across the country. And Carmarthen was only was the only Labour gain. So it was I believe it was all mishandled. But to be fair to me, mind, I threw myself into it for three years. I, uh, you were essentially a full time candidate, were you? Uh, essentially a full time candidate. But you were working for the Labour Party. That was in nineteen sixty nine, March sixty nine, when one day Jim Callaghan got hold of uh, T. Mervyn Jones, uh, the old chairman of uh, Wales Gas at the time, and uh, asked him would they release me to be the PRO in Wales which uh, which Mervyn did came as a shock to me okay but I had been a full-time candidate since the end of 1967 uh, hardly a weekend was missed and I had some very very loyal workers who uh, threw their whole life into the campaign and we went to every carnival every agricultural show every baby show you name it we were everywhere, and and in the media, if anybody ever bothers to look at the papers of Carmarthen, the three or four papers as they were then, Carmarthen Times, Carmarthen Journal, South Wales Guardian, the height of political campaigning was at a zenith, and it carried for four, five, six years. The papers of that day were the Twitter and the Facebook of now. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and nobody, nobody didn't read them. No, no. You know, you're talking of the circulation of those local papers being eighteen, twenty thousand each, every week. So you became the MP, and at that time you were seen as quite a hero for Labour because you'd knocked out Plaid Cymru's only yes. MP. Uh, and then that, in fact, you won two elections. The second one you won very narrowly, didn't you? Yeah, in, three by three votes. Uh, in February of 1974, and then you lost yes, uh, the seat yeah. back to Gwynvor uh, yeah. in uh, October of 74. How was he able to make a comeback? Oh, well, simple tactical voting. First of all, I had upset many in the Labour Party now. First of all, I called in 1967, one of my first public pronouncements was there is need for a Welsh Labour Party with its own structure, its own party conference, its own policies. This was about December 1967. So I was hauled before Transport House in London. Uh, why am I saying these things? You know, they started thinking I was a nationalist. And they didn't... I mean, in those days, it was called the Welsh Council of Labour. 
and it carried very little status other than being an administrative machine, an organisational machine for the constituencies in Wales. Well, I wanted to move it on further. So I was held with some suspicion then, in those days. After I was the PRO research officer in Wales, the Kilbrandon Commission had been set up, the Labour Party needed... That was to look at uh, the possibility of devolution. devolution. And I was asked to chair a working group with Paul Flynn, Alan Michael, uh, two or three other well-known people in Wales, all of us young, all of us below 30, 33 years of age, and we came up with a structure after a lot of debate and argument. Our evidence to the Commission was actually much not as strong as what we had wanted. But in getting this policy, again, at the executive meetings of the party in Wales, at the meeting of the Welsh Parliamentary Labour Group in the House of Commons, there were vicious arguments going on. Because Wales was divided politically in the party. Still is today, by the way. Um, Calvin Jones hasn't got too many supporters, has he, on the devolution front. When he says his speeches, which I welcome from time to time, when he talks of even federal Britain, you don't get the AMs coming along and saying, there's silence. There's silence in the Welsh Labour Party about it. The Labour Party has always been divided on the language, on Wales, and decentralisation. And by by February 74, I wasn't regarded as a as the enemy within, to be honest. And I remember, so for that February election, Ray Powell, the former MP for... Oakmore. And I think he was chairman of the Welsh Labour Party then, or the Welsh Council of Labour. It still wasn't called Welsh Labour Party. And Wilson came down to Gamarthen about three or four times in my time in Gamarthen, because I knew Wilson well through doing organising public relations events for him in Wales. I got to know him in other ways. And a few days before the election of February 74, Wilson was down speaking in St Peter's Church Hall. And at the end of the meeting, Ray Powell came up to me and he said, Listen, Gunnar, he said, it's about time somebody said this to you. There are many of us in the Labour Party in Wales are rather hoping you're going to lose. This is true. Because with Gwynvor, we know who the enemy is. With you, we don't know where you're coming from and we are finding it very difficult to cope with you. So I have no doubt that uh, through various channels and connections, I lost 1,500, 2,000 of a traditional mining area vote without doubt. Where would those votes have gone? Well, some would have gone to Gwynwell, others probably didn't vote. Um, and of course, something else had happened. I was then more of a centrist in politics. So I was not seen as being one of the boys, was I? I was not seeing on the left, you know, with Neil and uh, all the others. Neil Kinnock. You know, um, so therefore, and he was an emerging force slowly and slowly. Um, so there was that. My mistake in February 74, looking back, and I've said it many a time, during the third or fourth recount, I lost, I was losing by one. Right? I should have called it a day. And I should have let Gwynvor be the MP. Why do you say that? Well, what happened afterwards? I went to I went to the House of Commons for six months until the October election. In the constituency maybe just on Saturdays. Gwynvor was in command all the time. Now the the roles would have been reversed in my judgment. So when it came to October seventy four they talk of tactical voting these days and how tactical voting worked in uh, uh, in the last general election, etc., etc. The originators of tactical voting has always been commanded because by October 74, there were only two horses in the race. And the Liberal vote that had collapsed in February anyway, the Liberal vote almost disappeared the Conservative vote was almost annihilated. 
My vote went up about 3,000 to the second highest vote for Labour in Carmarthen ever, right? And Gwynfor, his, his vote went up by 6,000. That's how it was. It was pure tactical voting. So that was enough to give him a comfortable majority. Comfortable majority, yes. So the thing is, your elected political career came to an end in 1973. That's right. And yet now, many years later, you're still as much involved in politics, commentating on it and uh, putting up yes. uh, stuff on your yeah. blog well, as ever. Why, I mean, why I, have uh, you kept uh, so interested in politics all these years? I'm, I suppose I am a, a political animal. Do you regret the fact that you only had one and a yes. tiny bit of terms? Well, I regret two or three things. I could have been the candidate in 1979 and come out again. But to my surprise, Roger Thomas, who was the president, wanted to stand against me. Now, I was a bit naive and a bit arrogant, I suppose. Uh, too young to understand. Look, he had a right to have a go. I had about 18 nominations and Roger had four. I would have won easily. What do you reckon I did? I pulled out. Why? Well, as you said, you say, I, as I said, I thought, well, look, for eight years, I've done the donkey work. I transformed Labour in this constituency um, from a party that was on its knees in the summer of 66, literally on its knees, totally transformed it to a real campaigning unit. And I didn't understand why why Roger wanted to do that. But that is me, you see. I, uh, um, that is probably my naivety about being given the credit in politics. You, you, I've learned long afterwards, even inside the Lib Dems, by the way, um, that you don't get much credit. Um, you just got to try and fight every battle. And because... Yes, I would. I, 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 I think a lot of things would be would have been different inside the Labour Party in Wales, and in times inside Welsh politics, if I had survived, let's say another ten years longer. What would have happened differently? Well, you see, in the eighties, then devolution almost disappeared as an issue. If you look back at those days, because we have to remember that in 1979 there was a referendum where there was a four-to-one right. majority and against devolution. It's a bit like the referendum now on Brexit. Everybody almost was afraid to raise devolution, but the SDP in Wales, because you were we were founding member of the SDP. Yes, with Tom Ellis and a few others, the SDP in Wales we pushed devolution very, very, very hard in every conference. It's on the record, if anybody cares to... By the way, I've got 15 boxes of evidence of what I'm saying now here. I can prove it to anyone about what's been said in the papers, what's been said in policy papers, what's been said in minutes of meetings. I have it all. Why? I was there. That is why. People can write what they want. I went through it. So, but Plaid was silent. You know, in, the, in those days, you had, I think, David Ellis Thomas as leader. David never used to say much about devolution at all in the 80s. Uh, and Wigley never a bit later. Uh, things recovered in the 90s, became more of an issue. Uh, but uh, I don't think I would have let it go if I'd still be uh, in the Labour Party. And the Labour Party knew that. So, you were involved with the SDP, which was essentially a breakaway of centrists from the Labour Party, which yeah. you and others like Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams um, and uh, David Owen considered yes. to have gone too far yeah. to the left. Yeah. Um, what significance did the SDP play, do you think, at that time? Well, it changed Labour. Labour will always deny this. Um, after the days of Foot when he was hammered in 83 and then Kinnock was hammered in 87 he understood that they had to change and the party moved to the centre it was an anti-European party up until the 1992 election really after the 87 election so the SDP made a big impact social democracy made a big impact on how the Labour Party handled itself and the issues like one member, one vote, 
which is now the practice in the party. That's why that was one of the reasons why we left the Labour Party in 1981. The key areas were were um, unilateral disarmament, Europe, and democracy inside the Labour Party, and the ridiculous block vote of the unions running the party. Those were the four central things. And by the way, I've never regarded myself as a centrist. So when people talk of the centrist SDP, it wasn't for me a centrist party. It was a radical party that was going to change things. But I discovered within the SDP that yet again, as I was inside Labour in the 70s, I was struggling in the 80s to be accepted with the views I had on electoral reform on home rule, on Europe, and many other issues. You know, I suppose I've been a radical reformer and not able to compromise too much, I suppose. And in those days, there were, I wonder what the heated battles I had inside the Labour Party from 67 to 74, they were just as vicious and aggressive inside the STP in 81 to 85, 86, between David Owen supporters and my views of how Wales and Welsh politics would be. I think I had I had to survive about three or four issues, votes of no confidence from the Welsh executive. Because uh, your, your role was... I was chair. Your, you were chair. But also I was joint Wales. chair with uh, Winston Roddick, uh, good man, very good man. And I was joint chair with him on the alliance in Wales. This is when the STP joined up with the Liberals. Yes, and we were very successful in those days. And we used to hold conferences with 500 in them. I go to a, I go to a conference, rarely mind, to a Lib Dem conference in Wales these days. Lucky to have 50 there. That was the difference between the impact it made in the 80s. But Labour changed. But I think also one of the biggest problems we had was the Falklands War. Now I'm going to say something now which I'd long held of you. The Falklands War was a politically motivated war. Mrs Thatcher was third in the opinion polls. The SDP were at 50, 51%, SDP alliance, Labour was about 28-30%, and I think the Tories were 21-22. When the Falklands War took over, things changed. Because typically, typically of British society, you know, patriotism, waving the Union Jack, rule Britannia and all that, all that nonsense, um, took over. And I remember watching foot that morning, Saturday morning on television when they had the debate of should they go to war with the Falklands and he joined ranks with Maggie and you know the great peace living man uh, I had a lot of affection for uh, uh, Michael Footman uh, maybe it's because of his liberal roots um, because I don't he wasn't a traditional left person uh, he held left wing views, he held radical views so I had a lot of time for Michael um, but I was gobsmacked the fact that he was not wholly against the Falklands that's right, war. that's right you know, think of that Armada, I don't know if people remember that You know, what a massive Armada and people who have written about the time and who know far more about it militarily than me we came within a whisker of losing that war within a whisker there were two or three of our battleships warships that were hit by the Argentinian Exocet missiles but they never exploded they hit the plane uh, they hit the ships but they never exploded within a whisker so if we lost the Falklands War that would be the end of Margaret Thatcher yes and yes. so the 
the policies that she put through in the 80s would not have happened. Uh, what do you think would happen? Do you think the Labour would have made a comeback or what would have happened? I mean, as you said, before the Falklands War, the I, STP was doing I, I believe the STP Liberal Alliance would have gone from strength to strength. Do you think they could have formed a government? Eventually, yes. But you see, it was now an issue. Are you supporting Britain or not? Are you supporting Maggie and the Falklands or not? And then the, elect- the by-elections, etc., after 83, and after the 83 general election, the whole dynamics changed and slowly the SCP Liberal Alliance started to um, unravel David Owen and David Steele disagreed, didn't see eye to eye David Owen had little time for the Liberals, little time Uh, I used to argue with him him about it, Uh, he always saw them as wishy-washy people that at the end could not be trusted on the big issues, on the big decisions. And uh, there we go. And he, also, and he always said, you merge, and what will be eventually will be the return of the Liberal Party. And reluctantly, on in hindsight, I have to agree with him. Because certainly that's what has happened in Wales. You know, in the 80s, there would have been about, I think... 3,000 members of the SDP in Wales and something very similar Liberal Party members Okay, there's a moving force and in fact if you looked at the um, if you looked at the the officer positions the policy positions the organising positions they were mainly SDP driven people once the merger happened 88 within three years the Social Democrats within the Liberal uh, Liberal Democrats in Wales, it's different in England, in Wales, more or less gone. I can I can't I cannot think of I don't know ten, twenty people that I would recognise as from the old Social Democrat um, camp, as it were. Now people have asked me, well, why are you why are you saying that? Can't you see that we are now a merged party? Yes, I fought more than anyone for that merged party, to my own cost inside the SDP as well. I, I understand it totally. But what I do not understand is why it has become such a liberal party again. You, you read at pronouncements, you listen to pronouncements. And I've said this to Tim Farron, and I've said it to Vince Cable, but I think Vince Cable is starting to listen. Because you don't hear Vince using the word liberal values too often. But he comes from the Social Democrat camp. Because I've told him more than once, when you talk of liberal values, what does it mean? Talk of equality, talk of justice, talk of fairness, talk of all those sort of things. Even David Cameron calls him a liberal. The other day, that Eurosceptic minister, Steve Baker, in the House of Commons in answering Tom Brake from the... Uh, uh, from, I too have liberal values, he said. And that's yeah. the problem. That's the problem. And if the Liberal Democrats want to capture over to them, themselves, disgruntled Labour people, as we did end of the 70s, early 80s, it would be from the Social Democratic wing of the Labour Party that they will come from. Not from anywhere else. Because now, I mean, the Liberal Democrats in Wales are virtually a spent force, aren't they? They've lost all of their MPs. They've got one Assembly member, uh, Kirsty Williams, who has joined a Labour government, uh, essentially as an independent minister. So does it have any future? Gosh, it's always difficult to write off a party in politics. You never know. But it's been a disappointing decade. You know, it's been a decline after decline after decline. I mentioned to Tom Far- to, to Tim Farron before the election he was leader. Before long, the Lib Dems will be under 5% in the vote in Wales. And he just laughed in my face. Check the record. That's what's happened. To be fair, the conditions for that were dictated by the Tory Lib Dem coalition. Um, Did you oppose that? 
Well, I said from the beginning, I, I, I often say a story. The day of the, um, of the agreement in the Rose Garden... Between David Cameron and... Yeah, we were in, I was inspecting a school because I'm, I'm very proud of the 20 years we did in, in school inspections. You know, we you used to have a school inspection company. Yes, and we engaged some 600 people. We had a staff of about 30, 40. We'd carried out almost 10,000 inspections across England and Wales between 1993 and 2012. Exceptionally proud of, of what we did. Um, now it's all over. I look back and I think, gosh, I, yes, I enjoyed it, but it was at a cost, which was I didn't do anything with politics much anymore. So, to come back to the Rose Garden, we were inspecting an independent school, it was, in Denbyshire. I don't quite remember the name of it. And we were in this inspection room, and the television was on in the corner. I insisted on having the television on to watch what's going on. And the two of them were in the Rose Garden, and I said, look, I understand why it's happening, but no good will come of it. Profit before his time. Um, what was wrong was, and I've written blogs about this, uh, and sent copies of them to Clegg and many others. What was wrong was, it should have been a two-year agreement. I can understand, okay, there was a national crisis, there was an economic crisis, a financial crisis, the government of the day had to carry on. I can understand that. But not for five years. You know, it was not beyond the wit of man for the Lib, Dem, for the Lib Dems, for Clegg and his people to have just created a crisis. And there were, he had plenty of opportunities. Two of the agreements were one on um, electoral reform and one on reforming the House of Lords. On both, you know, major, major issues for Lib Dems, on both, the Tories stabbed the Clegg coalition partners in the back. Because they had an AV referendum, didn't yes, they? Yes, and then there was a vote on, on, on an elected House of Lords as well. That was it. That was the time. Walk out. Because, you see, third parties always misunderstand or under evaluate their importance and power. Both big parties needed the Lib Dems in 2010. The demands should have been much higher. Not a question of, a, of an AV referendum. Electoral, electoral Reform no. Act mm. in Parliament in the first year of that coalition. And the student tuition fees. Thing. Well, that's another fiasco, wasn't it? And if you read, and, uh, and I've said this in evidence to uh, Clegg and others, and it's never been disproven. In uh, Osborne's book, he turned to Clegg, because remember, it was our policy not to increase tuition fees. Yeah? He to turned to them, actually. Yeah, he turned to Clegg and said to him, look, we haven't got to do this. We haven't got to do this. This is, this is on the record. And Clegg said, oh, don't worry. I never believed in it anyway. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Idiot. Well, I mean, that single-handedly well, that, has destroyed uh, the yes. Liberal Democrats. And the sad thing there. is that he's out of politics now because his views on Brexit is probably, you know, the most respected of many, many people. Um, and the other sad thing is because of Iraq, Blair is similar to Clegg in these things and you never you always get it in social media why should you listen to Blair because of Iraq and why should you listen to Clegg because of tuition fees you know they're hung with their, their own house hoist with their own petard aren't they uh, on those issues uh, so the Lib Dems in Wales uh, hit trouble I disagree mind uh, and I spoke against it in, a, uh, in the only conference that the Welsh Lib Dems had to dis to agree whether uh, Kirsty was uh, uh, to join the Labour Council. I spoke in, in, in Newtown against that, OK? And the vote was... There's only about 130 there, with a party membership of 2,500. 
Now, that's real democracy, isn't it? That is, you, you can't get better democracy than that in a party called the Liberal Democrats. Um, and the vote was something like 120 to 12 or something, and I was one of the 12. Hmm. Because what I was saying was, if Kirsty wants to do this, fine. Let her do it. There's no need for the party to be officially involved. Because now, how often do you hear the Welsh Lib Dems criticising Labour government? How often do you hear them say anything that's contrary? But you don't. You don't. And then, in the Senate itself, the Lib Dem voice is silenced. And then we have this nonsense, which I see in the med- social media all the time. What Kirsty is doing as Education Minister. Yes, good stuff. But it's within a Labour cabinet. It's with Labour policy and budget. It's Labour cash. It's not Lib Dem cash. And when come the next election, like the coalition in in, uh, uh, 2015, will the Lib Dems be given credit for what they've done? No, not at all. You know, we, we are repeating in Wales now what was repeated in 2015. We haven't learnt. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Now, the big issue facing Wales at the moment is Brexit. Yeah. And... It's linked, isn't it, in your mind, with the need for constitutional change. Yes. Explain your position. I've Brexit has made me realise the precarious situation Welsh politics will be in. Okay? Within the UK, UK Union context, uh, there, there were some various buffers. Yeah? To, to dominance by Westminster, Whitehall and the civil service. Take, take, put Brexit into the agenda. You will see the dangers for Wales. Scotland is in a stronger position. You know, if they push the Scots too far, the Scots are going to break away. And probably they're going to do it within 10 years anyway. And if they push, if they push things in Northern Ireland too far, uh, give that 10, 15 years and there'll be the United Ireland. So what will you be left with? An England and Wales. And we'll become an annex. Just an annex of England. Now that can't happen. That mustn't happen. So I'm increasingly uh, a confederalist and I can even see the advantages of an independent Wales. See, the old-fashioned way of thinking of independence has gone because economies have changed. The old traditions on manufacturing, heavy industries, coal, steel, all those days are gone. We now live in different style of economies, service-based economies, uh, technological-based economies. And when people say Wales can't afford it, well, just look at the national debt of some countries who are in the EU, some seven, eight of them, and they're smaller than Wales in population. It's, you know, we, we're so used to accepting, you know, we, we got to, we got to be with them because we're not strong enough. But proportionally, would they have the same deficit? Yes, but to argue what will be the deficit you first got to look at all those massive expenditures, HS2, Trident, many other things, the cross-link rail, you know, you do hundreds of billions here, right? But Wales has to pay its share of those in taxation. So you can never at the moment say that Wales could not afford to run itself. The issue will be a different economy, yes. A different budget, most certainly. But it need not be something that people need be afraid of. But I don't know whether the Welsh have got it in it in them. Because there's one overriding issue, isn't there? The Wales, Wales has changed. 
And we've all got to recognise that. Um, the Wales that I was brought up in, in the 50s and the 60s, end of the 40s, it's unrecognisable, unrecognisable. Tell, tell us about the change that you've seen in Wales in that sense. Well, the, the change first has been society itself and population and people's interests. Um, two things changed everything. Cars, television. You've got to remember that mainly up until the first car I ever came across, it was my father's actually, 1953. First television, we had the first television in the village, black and white 12 inch bush, 1953. Black and white 12 inch bush, right? With very few programs on, no advertising, uh, a few hours of, of, uh, of programs, and then there were call intermissions. And those intermissions was of a goldfish, a goldfish bowl with a goldfish swimming around in it. And that would be on for hours. <laughs> anyway, but the car, because what did it do? It enabled people to travel. It enabled people to think wider. It enabled people to change their way of life. And this chapel disappeared as a central point. The rugby club in the village rugby clubs disappeared later on, admittedly, as a central thing, you know. Uh, when I used to play with Tumble and Kevnaithin in the period when, when was that? 60 to 65, something like that. You know, the, you would go to a West Wales rugby game, let's say Tumble v Pontoberem, and there'd be a thousand, two thousand there. You know, that was how it was. You go now to these places, I don't think you'll manage to get a hundred there. So how does that impact on the political scene? Well, it's then that what's happened is, over the last 20, 30 years, has been the migration into Wales. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, but let's not kid ourselves that it hasn't had an impact. And this time we accepted that impact and not be afraid to talk about it. You know, I'm, I'm not... Uh, uh, from the brigade, let's stop people coming to live in Wales. I don't believe in that at all. But we've got to accept it has changed things. Uh, when you have constituency parties, uh, constituencies from Denby, Flint, Conway, right across to Anglesey, down to Cardigan, Pembroke, even Carmarthen, then the Vale and Monmouth, with maybe 40% plus of the people living in those constituencies were born outside Wales. Now that's a different Wales, isn't it? The ironic thing is, of course, the heartland of Wales is still in the old mining South Wales valleys because there hasn't been too much migration in there. You know, it's low, 10%, 15%, because it's not an attractive place to live, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't know. But... The old Wales, so far as it does exist anywhere, it does exist in some shape or form, not entirely as it was, in those old industrial areas. And they, of course, rebelled during Brexit, didn't they? They have felt let down. They have felt left behind. They have seen where we are now, Cardiff, you know, flourish over 20 years. And those valley communities left behind in all sorts of ways, and not just the valleys, mid-Wales, west-Wales, north-west Wales, uh, you know, uh, and Welsh politics will have to do something about that too, because we can't go on as we are, creating a south-east Wales, a Cardiff-Newport hub, linked as they're beginning to talk with Bristol, and that will be the motto, the driving force for modern Wales. You can't allow that to happen and leave the rest of Wales behind. It mustn't be allowed to happen. In the 80s, in the 80s, Cardiff and Swansea were more or less equal. In fact, the first marina was in Swansea. The first indoor shopping centre, like the ones you have in Cardiff now, was in Swansea. The Quadrant. The Quadrant. Both of them. Before anything happened in Cardiff. Now compare the Swansea of now with the Cardiff of now. 
Cardiff is a great European city. It really is. You know, it's an impressive city. Um, and I'm glad it is like that. But look what has happened to Swansea. Now, there might be other reasons for that. Could well be that the local politicians aren't good enough. Could well be that they didn't see, have enough vision in Swansea uh, to be more, um, you know, uh, to dream and think big. If you don't think big in politics, you'll get nowhere. That's for sure. You, uh, if you don't have that aspiration, if you don't have that vision, if you don't have that aim, if you don't have that risk factor, don't be afraid to fail, isn't it? See, too many of our people are afraid to fail, aren't they, in politics? And the modern politician, well, I don't rate them too highly, I'm sorry to say. Um, I watch debates in the House of Commons. I watch debates sometimes because it's too boring in the Welsh Assembly. I watch them. People read their speeches, either from a laptop, in my day, there's no notes. If you knew your stuff, if you researched your stuff, if you understood the issues and the policies, you could do it without a note. These days, look, you can understand government ministers to make their statements. But even the Labour front bench, even Jeremy itself, he's got his notes there. Goodness gracious. Wilson, Jenkins, Healy, Foot, Ben. To be fair, even Neil. They didn't need any of that. We've got different types of politicians who are more afraid, and that's the problem in Brexit, you see. I don't think the people want Brexit anymore. I think the tide has turned. And it's turning slowly, and I think it'll turn more. And by the way, whichever party takes Britain out of the Euro European Union will not be in power again for 10, 15 years. Why do you say that? It's going to be a horrendous time. Now people go, oh, po politics of fear. Of course it's not politics of fear. Watch what's happening to the economy. Now, they try to convince us that things are fine. No, it's not. We're the bottom of the league of economic growth in the G20. And that has happened since the Brexit vote. Our economic growth is the slowest in Europe. Germany, France, Italy, they're growing at about 2-3%. What, what did we grow at? 1%, 1.3, 1.4. But aren't we going to have all these wonderful trade deals with countries <laughs> outside Europe? No, 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 no. The best trade deal we have is the trade deal we've got now. We are part of a community of 500 people. We have, we have trade with over 100 countries. You know this nonsense? Well, Mrs. Mayor, though, we're going to be global Britain. For goodness sake, we are global Britain. We already trade with over 100 countries. Already. Mrs. May went to China the other day and she agreed some trade deals. Hello? Are we still inside the European community? Yeah. Nobody will stop us. But they're trying to convince people to keep her party together that they will create global Britain. And if you imagine, just think of this. There's this market of 550 million and we are part of that. So we're going out and if we don't have a customs union, we're in trouble. Okay? So we then need to look for alternatives. Do you seriously think that we will carry any weight whatsoever with China, India, America, South Africa, Brazil, and all those other countries with populations of hundreds and hundreds of millions. Do you think we will have any clout? You know, our clout is linked to the EU. And I remember the days before the EU. And I remember the days, I, I don't know how old you are, Martin, but let me tell you this. Britain was called the sick man of Europe in the 60s. The sick man of Europe. And when people tell me that farmers voted for Brexit, well, I don't know how many of the farmers of the 50s and 60s are still alive. Because I tell you what, it was a struggle to get financial support from a London government 
to the agricultural industry. If you think that agriculture is going to be top of the list within Britain, no. Why? Because farmers don't carry clout. But within the EU, they do. Because the France in particular, the Netherlands, and many others. Anyway, there we go. Um, I was a passionate pro-European in the mid-70s, and I remain so. And I'm not afraid to tell openly the referendum vote should be disregarded. But, and, the, but the possibility of that happening is very slim, isn't well, it? Well, it's a funny world. It's a funny world. Um, do I disrespect that vote of July 2016? Of course I don't. June, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, an that was a people's opinion poll on one given day. And they say 17 million, yes, and 16 million voted the other way. 22 million didn't even vote at all. Uh, 60 to 17 year olds weren't allowed to vote. On and on and on, right? And yes, people promised that we, they would listen to the vote, but they shouldn't have made that promise because pal our system for three, four hundred years has been based on parliamentary democracy and the sovereignty of parliament. You get the Brexiteers saying the people instructed parliament. No, they didn't. They gave an opinion. But what everyone did, they got into, they didn't expect the vote to be like that. So they panicked. Nobody sat back and said, well, okay, it's an advisory referendum. How are we going to handle this? Instead of that, Article 50, Brexit will mean Brexit. And we did Article 50 when we're not ready, because here we are more than a year afterwards and we're still not ready. The difficulty is, uh, and um, I attended a conference last week, okay. uh, which was addressed by Keir Starmer, oh, the right. um, shadow Brexit secretary. Yes. And just in terms of the mechanics yeah. of having another vote on yeah. whether we stay in or uh, do confirm our desire to go, is that often it's put that people should be given the opportunity to vote on the final deal. deal. Yes. Difficulty with that is that we're not going to have a final deal before we're out. That's right. And so we're going towards March 2019 when we're due to leave. That's right. Um, what they're talking about now is a transitional deal. And the tran any transitional deal which we come to um, may not be reflected in any final deal. So it would be very difficult to have a referendum, so Keir Starmer was saying, before yeah. we've actually left. And then once we've left... In March of, of 2019, we're in a situation where we want to come back in. We might want to come back in. But then, if we wanted to come back in, we would, by that stage, have lost the rebate that was negotiated That's by right. Margaret Thatcher. That's right. We would have to accept the euro as the currency. Yeah. And we would also have to uh, enter the Schengen area. I agree, I agree with all so, that. So, where, where do we go? Well, first is, they should be arguing to say March 2019 should not be the leaving date. The leaving date should be the end of the transition period because in the transition period we accept 95 plus percent of the rules of the European Union. We will still abide by the rules of the customs union, the single market, the uh, Court of Justice, uh, citizens' rights, on and on and on. So we're only leaving in name. We're not leaving in fact. So the debate should be about when should the leaving date be? And I think the leaving date be is when we've finished the final deal. And that might be, by the way, 2025. Because if anybody thinks it's a two-year transition, well, they are living in Cloud Land as well. There's going to be a three, four, five-year transition period. This, you don't undo 45 years of history, 45 years of laws, 45 years of trade deals, 760 trade deals across the world. You don't undo that in a couple of years. You know, why, don't, why can't we be honest with the British people? Why are we afraid to say the truth? You know, so March 19, 2019 for me should not be the leaving date. 
I think the, the leaving date for me should be the end of the transition period. And in between times, there will have been a general election in 2022. And I can well imagine the thoughts that are going through some of these wily politicians. Let's push things back a bit and leave the next parliament to deal with the crisis. And Brexit will be an issue, probably a central issue, in the election of 2022. Well, it won't be if we're already out. Well, we're only out in name. But the difficulty is, as, as, uh, as I think you've acknowledged, if we are out in March 2019, yeah. uh, we couldn't really have a referendum again on membership because we'd already yeah. be out. We'd be talking about coming back on entirely different terms. Well, so how do you get, how do we get to the position well, that you're arguing I, for, if I, if which is that, which is that uh, we should uh, cancel the leaving date of March 2019? In, in, order, in order to get that, yeah. there would have to be a majority in the House of Commons for that. That's right. How do you achieve that? Well, well, first of all, people tend to forget that over 400 members of, the, of Parliament voted to remain. The majority in the House of Commons is for remain. But they're all running scared because of this. We've had this instruction. We've been instructed by the British people. And I keep on saying, no, no. We were advised. That was the opinion of the, on that day. If we had a referendum now on hanging, people will probably vote for hanging. Is Parliament then being instructed to bring back hanging? Or corporal punishment? There'd be people in favour of corporal punishment too. Is that how we're going to run this country now? Or Parliament has been sovereign, as I said, at least for 300 years. And that's where I... That's the basis of our democracy. It's the heart of politics... The, the sovereignty of Parliament. And yes, I should, I am one of those who want to encourage people to stop Brexit this autumn. So, uh, in order to achieve that, you'd have to get the Labour Party to change its stance? Yes. And you'd certainly need a sufficient number of Tory rebels to push any vote through? Yeah. Well, How achievable are, are both of those? Well, Labour has a crisis, hasn't it? as a crisis uh, first his leader is not too enamoured of Europe which which he was hasn't been for 30 years but he's desperately moving and moving forward um, something's got to happen I accept something has got to happen uh, that will radically change things and the, the thing will be what transitional deal are we going to have Secondly, what's the impact of that deal on the border in Northern Ireland? Now, if there is no border between the two, which means effectively a single market in Northern Ireland, how are the Brexiteers going to cope with that? Um, there's many... Uh, what is that thing now? There's many a sip between the cup and the lip. And... This is yet to be fought out. Um, but I'm a Remainer. Uh, and no disrespect to people who voted the other way. And I've never disrespected them. And I've never attacked them. Or belittled them. That maybe they were a type of people who don't usually vote. And they came out that day. And there's a couple of two, three million who did that. Evidence shows that. That's not the issue, was it? There were people who felt left behind in our country for decades. And this was their chance to express their opinion. And they turned their ire not on Britain, but on Europe. Because all the things they are concerned about, the homeless, lack of housing, education standards, the NHS, transport across Britain and in Wales, uh, industrial decline, social conditions, uh, you name it. They're not European issues, they're British issues. All those issues are not going to disappear after March next year. And that is when people will realise, yeah, that was a mistake. But time is running out. Yes, it is. And if what you want to happen 
is to happen, yeah. then the minds have to be changed of a lot of Labour MPs and a lot of Conservative MPs. Do that's you think, true. That, do that's you think true. that's realistic? Yes, that's true. But uh, as I told you, I'm a great believer in giving it a go, giving it a try. But it's based on understanding why people voted to leave. And we must never denigrate them. must never create them as opponents. They are people who've got to understand that they voted the way they did on issues that was nothing to do with the European Union. And this nonsense that they voted to leave the single market. They didn't vote to leave the single market. They were appealing for help. They were crying in those communities, look, we've been left behind. We can... But, but I think there's also evidence, and I was at another Brexit conference yeah, on well, Wednesday. You're a very knowledgeable man. <laughs> there's, yeah. uh, there's also evidence that uh, there are a lot of people who voted for Brexit yeah. who were not the left behind. There were people who were uh, quite well off, uh, with yes. quite nice pensions, yes. and they didn't really care about the economy. I know. Uh, they were more concerned about things like uh, what they considered to be cultural change, That's which right. they associated yes. with... Uh, yes. the European Union, yes. rightly or yes. wrongly, yes. and a lot yes. of them were actually against things like multiculturalism. That's right. And they're against immigration. Yes. Uh, well, so hence you're talking of the generation, the over-65s. A, a lot of the over-65s, so there's a uh, disproportionate number of people who are over-65. I think the over-65s voted, uh, voted by about 70% to leave, something of that kind. But they remember the days of empire, see? They remember the days of rural Britannia and all that. And they so think it was a vote for the past. Vote for the past. And I've read some opinion polls too, which I find amazing, of that group. Some 40-50% of them would not mind even members of their own family losing their jobs as long as Brexit is uh, realised. What a statement. What an attitude. That they rather see their children and grandchildren suffer than see Brexit fail. You know, on that note, I do give up. <laughs> to be honest, I do give up. But you still retain hope that there may be, might be a change yeah, in well, as long as, as, as long as there's uh, life in me, I'll still be pro-Europe till the very end. Gwynora Jones, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. 